Spirit of the living God, help us to read your word expectantly, to receive it joyfully, to interpret it correctly, and to obey it faithfully. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You uh, might wonder why it is that that Sue and, and your priest have come down here to sit in, in the front row. I, I did this at the last service because I said, I'm not going to have you standing behind me shaking your head no. <laughs> if you're going to shake your head no, I want to I see it. You know, I, wanna, I, know where I'm go- I wanna know where I'm going off base. You know? I also want to say to you that I don't, know, I don't know Zach other than what I've, I've met of him this morning, but, but I do want to say something about Gene and, and his uh, beloved wife, Kimberly. Uh, God must love you uh, an awful lot to have them come here to be your rector and, and his wife. Uh, this man loves the Lord Jesus. He stands faithfully upon the word, and he's just a bold proclaimer of, of what God wants you to, to know uh, about him and his church and the world. And um, you may not know this, but he's a dean, and the other deans in this diocese call him the coach. Must I explain why? (laughs) Need I say more about the coach? Yeah, I really appreciate that uh, about him. I'm just getting to know him, and and, uh, we are, as he said, kindred spirits. So I want to talk about um, everybody's favorite subject this morning, and that is obedience. If that's your favorite topic, would you raise your hand? (laughs) Yeah. Was, that, was your hand going up or were you just scratching there? Yeah, just scratching, that's right. <laughs> so let me start by asking you this. Um, and some of you are, are a little bit older, some of, some of you are younger, and we even have some, some very young folks here. But, but when you were growing up, in, in your home, were there any rules that you were supposed to obey? Any of you? Anybody, anybody have rules in your home? Okay. Uh, who made the rules? You make the rules? Yeah, oh, yeah, is that dad? Is that your, yeah, okay. And, and does dad expect you to obey, obey the rules? You know, is that part of the rules? Yeah, you will obey the rules, yeah. And, and I wonder, did you, ever, uh, did you ever disobey the rules? How'd that work out for you? <laughs> did that go well? I can remember, <laughs> this is a side note, but I can remember the first time I really disobeyed and, and I was gonna get spanked, and man, I was terrified, and so I went to the bathroom and I grabbed a magazine and I stuck it down in my pants, <laughs> thinking my father wouldn't see it, but he discovered the magazine, all right. Uh, so uh, just a couple of examples. You tell me, uh, give me an example of a rule that you had in your house growing up, anyone? Curfew. curfew. What was your curfew when you were a teenager? Um, yeah, and, and you, you probably broke that a few times, didn't yeah. you? Okay, yeah. Anybody else? Curfew. Dinner at 5 o'clock, yeah, all right. You had to be there, right, or you might miss the meal. Anything else? In by sundown, all right. Uh, let me share with you some of the rules that we had in, in my home when, when we were all growing up, my sisters and, and, and me. Um, when you sit down to eat, you eat what's on your plate. It doesn't matter how much sugar you put on the food, but you do not get up to eat everything on your plate. <laughs> Spend a lot of time at the dentist. <laughs> anyway, little boys don't hit little girls. There was no corollary in my family about little girls not hitting little boys, and I had three sisters. <laughs> Teenage boys don't climb out of their bedroom window onto the roof. 
Teenage boys don't drive on Northampton Street. We'll get back to those two later. <laughs> we go to church on Sunday, every Sunday, and we sit in the Miller pew with the grandparents and aunt and uncle and cousins, also all girls. And uh, when, um, when we brush our teeth, this is the one that used to just drive me nuts. When we brush our teeth, we don't leave globs of toothpaste in the bathroom sink. I never understood that until I had kids, you know? <laughs> When we ask, we say please, and when we receive, we, we say thank you. Now, I'm just wondering, uh, did your parents, when you were growing up, did they have house rules or family rules because they were tyrannical and mean-spirit and irrational? Or did they think that by you being obedient to the rules that they had within your home that you might actually turn out to be a better person, a better sibling, uh, someday a better spouse, a better student, a better citizen? Well, I think it was the latter. They were hoping that you would turn out to be a decent person. Now, I know that most of you find it difficult to believe, but there were times when Bishop John disobeyed his parents as a little boy. That's why we had the rule about little boys don't climb out of the bedroom window onto the roof chasing chipmunks. <laughs> and the second rule, teenage boys don't drive on Northampton Street, was because all the teenage boys wanted to drive there because that's where the teenage girls were. And yes, the day I got my license at age 16, the very day I received that license, I was on Northampton Street and I got a ticket. My parents weren't so upset about the ticket, they were upset about the fact that I disobeyed their rule that little teenage boys don't drive on Northampton Street. But the fact of the matter is we all disobey. From time to time, we all disobey. Some of us do it more than others, but we're all disobedient, even as, as adults. Sometimes we're disobedient to traffic laws. Can I get an amen? <laughs> we're disobedient to, uh, to IRS regulations. We can be disobedient to teachers and parents. Some clergy are disobedient to their bishops. And yes, we can also be disobedient to, to God. Disobedience seems to be part of our breed as, as fallen creatures, but it's not God's plan for us as his children who have been redeemed by grace and brought into a reconciled relationship with him through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Being disobedient is not God's plan for us. The trouble is, as adults, we don't seem to be any more excited about being obedient than when we were children. It seems to stick with us throughout our lives. And yet, as Christians of all people, people who love God should love his commands. We should thrive on obedience just as Jesus thrived on being obedient to his father throughout his life. Do you know if you study the adult life of, of, of Jesus, you'll find that that life, that sacrificial life that he came here to earth to live, it was couched in obedience from beginning to end. Let me give you some examples of this. If you're in John's Gospel, the sixth chapter, the 38th verse, and you, if you have a Bible, you're not, you may not be able to turn to these verses quickly enough, but I'll give them to you anyway. John 6, 38, Jesus is, is teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath in Capernaum, his mission base on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he says this to those who are listening, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I've come down here to be obedient to my father, to be obedient to daddy. That was at the very beginning of his ministry. And then you might remember at the end of his ministry, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he's handed over to suffering and death. And in Luke 24, 42, you know, we find out, you know, that Jesus is kneeling down by a rock 
and, 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 and in great anxiety and, and in great fear and in great tension, there are drops of sweat dripping from his head that, that, that look like, like blood because he's saying to his father, you know, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Did daddy take the cup from him? No. Did he drink the cup? Well, of course he did. He went to the cross. Not my will, but your will be done. So from the beginning to the end of his ministry, Jesus was obedient to the Father. Listen to this from the, the book of Hebrews, the fifth chapter, the seventh verse. The author writes, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. The author here is talking about Gethsemane. Jesus crying out to the Father with tears to the one who could hear him. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. You could say his reverent obedience. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Did Jesus suffer? Was he obedient through that suffering? And once made perfect, again through his suffering and his obedience, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. My friends, you and I have been created in the image and likeness of God. And, and as his sons and his daughters, uh, through our faith in Jesus, we are constantly being called to a posture of obedience, whether we like it or not. In fact, this divine call to obedience is found throughout the New Testament, not only in the words of Jesus found in the four Gospels, but also in the epistles that were written by his disciples. Let me give you some examples of these. Uh, John 14, 23, Jesus is in the upper room. It's the night that he is going to be handed over to death, and he has washed the feet of his disciples. He has instituted the Eucharist, a holy communion, uh, his body and his, his blood from the bread and, and, and the wine. And um, he, he says this to his disciples, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. If anybody loves me, I will know that by the obedience that person offers to my teachings. And then he says this conversely in the, in the 24th verse of chapter 14. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Isn't that interesting? If you don't obey my teachings, you don't love me. Now, of course, we all make mistakes from time to time, but he's saying, you know, the intent here should be for you to be obedient to my commands, to my teachings. In Paul's letter to the Romans, the first chapter, the fifth verse, he's teaching about his ministry among the Gentiles, and he's, he writes this, through Jesus and for his namesake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes through faith. Paul is saying, my mission is to go among the Gentiles and to preach the good news of the gospel and then to help these people have faith to be obedient to the commands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, he's writing about the coming judgment, uh, the day of the Lord. And he says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, if it begins with the family of God, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We who are the family of God are to obey it. What about those who don't obey the gospel of God? What's going to happen to them? And then finally, this one from, from John, the beloved disciple. In his first epistle, the fifth chapter, the third verse, he says this, this is love for God to obey his commands. This is love for God to obey his commands. 
And so for these and many more texts that we discover, according to God's plan, salvation in Jesus Christ is just the beginning. It's just the very beginning of a lifelong process of being obedient to the commands of Jesus. Now, furthermore, in the epistle that Sue read to us this morning from Ephesians, the fourth chapter, uh, beginning at the 11th verse, Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus, that it's, a it's incumbent upon those who have been appointed and anointed as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to do two things predominantly. That is to equip the saints, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, and then also to help them mature into the full stature of Christ, to help them mature in obedience to Christ Jesus. And I believe that leaders do that best as they teach those entrusted to their care everything that Jesus commanded us to do, everything he commanded his disciples to do, and that, of course, has been handed down to us through the scriptures. So let me go to Matthew 28 for a second to, to the Great Commission. And a lot of time when people quote the Great Commission, they, they shortchange it. You know, generally this is what you hear when somebody is quoting the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 and, and, and 19. Uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's where most people end that particular text on the Great Commission. But the scriptures don't end there. Jesus doesn't end there. He goes on in verse 20 and he says, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You know, that's called the great omission, leaving that part out of the great commission <laughs> and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so then as a bishop, as, as priests down here, you know, it is, it is our call. It is our anointing. It is our job not only to teach you the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also instruct you on how to obey those commands. It's called discipleship. We're not uh, to, to just come here and to puff you up with knowledge. We have to help you use that knowledge in an outward way so that you're being obedient to Christ Jesus our Lord. So what commands am I talking about? What commands... Can we reflect on here for a moment? What about commands that Jesus gave us about love? Like love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And oh yes, love your enemies. And in the body of Christ, love one another. A new command I give you that you should love one another as I have loved you. You heard it in the gospel lesson this morning. What about commands like this? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. What about being a peacemaker? How? By turning the other cheek. By praying for those who, who persecute you. Commands like humble yourself that you might be exalted. Serve others instead of being served. Care for widows and orphans. Meet the needs of those who are hungry and thirsty and naked. And care for those who are lonely and sick and in prison. Stop worrying. Stop worrying about tomorrow. Strive to be the least that you might be the greatest and go and make disciples go. I mean, need I go on? All you need to do is, is open up your Bible. I know most of the new Bibles, they don't have the words of Jesus in red, but it, it might be helpful, you know, if you could find one of those. And just read the words in red and just list all these, these commands 
that our Lord Jesus gave us. I know it can be overwhelming. And I'm not saying you have to do all in one day, but we need to start somewhere. We need start to start being obedient to those, those commands. Now, some of you might be thinking, gosh, Bishop John, I don't know you very well, but this is starting to sound a whole lot like works righteousness to me. This sounds like I have to earn my way into heaven. I have to be obedient so that, that God will somehow love me and, and save me. And, and I want to say to you that I totally believe in being saved by grace through faith. I believe what Paul wrote in the second chapter of Ephesians, verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourself, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And guess what? Every time somebody wants to quote a verse about being saved by grace through faith, that's where they stop. Except Paul goes on. There's another verse that follows, uh, Ephesians 2.10. It says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you hear that? We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But why obedience? Why obedience leading to good works? Is it because we serve a God who's dictatorial or irrational or, or unreasonable? No, it's because God knows this, that actions speak louder than words. You ever heard that saying? Your parents ever say that? Actions speak louder than words. We can say all things coming out of our mouth, but if you want to back up what you're saying, there's going to be some action behind those words. Jesus calls his disciples, his followers, to be obedient to his commands, to practice obedience, so that as people are observing us at being obedient, they will be attracted to the Father. They will be attracted to the one to whom we're being obedient. So why are we obedient? So that people who are dead in their sins, people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, will be drawn to him, be drawn to the Father. How? By our being obedient to the commands of Jesus. Also, so that those who do know Jesus might be drawn into a deeper relationship through him, with him, as we're obedient to Jesus' commands. You know how, you know, if you're a baby Christian, you know, if you're just still, you know, as the scriptures say, drinking milk, you need to eat some meat. So you need to hang around with some people who are eating meat, the scriptures, so you know how to mature in your life in Christ, growing into the full stature of, of Christ Jesus. You know, Jesus speaks to this obedience again in his Sermon on the Mount in, in the fifth chapter of Matthew. And, and this is what he says. You are the light of the world. Yes, you are. Now, you might be thinking, didn't Jesus say he was the light of the world? Because actually he did. He did. His, the first of his seven I am statements in John's gospel, he said, I am the light of the world. But in his Sermon on the Mount, he said to those who were listening to him, those who were following him, those who were coming to faith in him, you're the light of the world. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now he's talking about these people who are the light of the world being a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And he said, you know, nobody lights, nobody lights a, a, a lantern and, and puts it under a basket or a bushel. No, they set it on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Therefore, let your light so shine before people that they may see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. See the good works that you're doing in obedience to Jesus' command and praise your Father who is in heaven. Now again, let me be clear. In God's economy, obedience has never been a way of earning salvation. 
Please understand that. We have been saved by grace through faith. If the Jews could have been saved by obedience to God's laws, all the commandments that were handed down to them through Moses, there would have been no need for God to send his sinless son to this world to take on our sins and die a horrific death on the cross. There would have been no need for that if we could earn grace through obedience. However, obedience does not negate grace. Did you hear what I said? Obedience does not negate grace. Obedience is a byproduct of grace. As we receive that grace, as we receive that, that salvation in Jesus, we should be obedient. So obedience is a, it's a byproduct of grace. Our grace-inspired obedience leads to spiritual maturity and the disciple of, of Christ. And listen to this. Our grace-inspired obedience facilitates spiritual sight and the unbeliever. And I want to focus on that for uh, a moment, that our grace-inspired, uh, excuse me, our grace-inspired obedience facilitates sight in an unbeliever. Now, now, what do I mean by that? Perhaps you remember a story in, in John's Gospel about some Greeks who come to a feast in Jerusalem and they, they come up to Philip, who is one of Jesus' disciples, and, and they say, we would like to see Jesus. You remember that story? Let me just, let me recount it for you here in, in John's Gospel, the 12th chapter, beginning at the 20th verse. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew and Philip, and Andrew went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will will honor him. So let me put this little narrative into its proper context. It's the, the very last week of, of Jesus' life. And he is in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover. And these Greeks come up to Philip and say, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip goes to Andrew. And, and the two of them go to Jesus. And they say, hey, there's some Greeks here, sir. And, and they'd like to meet you. They'd like to have a conversation with you. Now, Jesus responds in a very odd and compute com peculiar way, as if he doesn't even understand what it is that, that Philip and Andrew are, are saying to him. He responds this way, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And they're starting to think, Philip and Andrew are thinking, well, what's wrong with Jesus? Is he losing it? You know, maybe he needs a little bit of rest. You know, we just told him these Greeks want to see him, and he starts talking about agriculture, about growing wheat. What's the point? Well, what was the point that Jesus was making? Using the image of a dying seed, Jesus was saying that by laying down his life, many lives would be saved. But that wasn't the end of it. Because remember, he is about to die. This is the last week of his life. And on what we call Good Friday, he's going to be on the cross. And then he's going to be dead and put in the grave. So the other part of this story is that he's saying to his, his followers, to Philip and Andrew, by laying down your lives spiritually in obedience to me, 
laying down your sins, laying down your selfish wants and your agendas, in obedience to my commands, you're going to help others see me because I'm not going to be here much longer. In other words, you need to show me to them by your obedience. You need to die to yourself so that you can show me to them. Now, think about this. When those Greeks asked Philip and Andrew if they could see Jesus, they could have seen him. Maybe they did meet with him. The scriptures don't record that for us. But they could have literally seen Jesus. They were both in Jerusalem at the same time. We don't know what happened. But let's just imagine that today someone comes in here off of the street during the service or after the service, and, and you don't know who they are, and, and they walk up to these two guys right here, these priests, and they say to them, sirs, we would like to see Jesus. Now, your leaders might think, oh my goodness, these, this person needs some help. <laughs> you know, Maybe they need to spend some time with a psychologist to find out what's going on. Maybe they're a little you know, uh, imbalanced. But Jesus wouldn't see it that way. Jesus would expect these leaders to show him to that visitor. How would they do that? By being obedient to his commands. In fact, you should be seeing Jesus in your leaders as they exhibit obedience to Jesus' commands. Very first church where I served as a rector I sort of uh, crawled into the pulpit my very first Sunday, and there on the pulpit was a sign that was pasted there, uh, and, and it said, uh, sir, we would see Jesus. And it kind of took me back for a moment. These people were saying to me, hey, when you're up there and you're preaching to us and you're teaching us, we want to see Jesus in you. We don't want to just see you. We want to see Jesus. So teach us about Jesus and show us how to live a life like him. I want to share with you just for a minute uh, an example of showing Jesus to others through, by being obedient to, to his commands. Um, years ago when I was in Rwanda on one of the mission trips that I led over there, I was being carried out into the bush on a regular basis, day after day. They take you out to these churches which are all over the place and, and sooner or later when you're among the people they say, you know, get up and preach, just preach the word. You, you never know how many churches you're going to, and, y and you don't know, you know when it's going to come, but sooner or later, they're going to ask you to preach. In fact, the first time I went, and I went into this church, the worship service was six hours and 15 minutes, middle of the week, and I preached four times. Four times, I mean, and you know what? You're, you're on the fly, you know? You're having to think about what to pray. Thank God they have an interpreter and you say Jesus loves you, and then he spouts off three sentences, and you preach really well because they're listening to the interpreter. But anyway, you're preaching these sermons, and, and on one trip, I thought, you know, this is getting a bit frustrating for me, and we were going to go out uh, the next day in the afternoon, and I made a decision. What I was going to do is I was going to sit in my room in the morning, and I was going to prepare a bunch of sermons and put them on file cards and stick them in my pocket. I was going to be armed, you know, I'm pull one out, you know, and get them. <laughs> And so I wrote these, these little homilies and had them on cards in my pocket, and they came to my room and said, you know, uh, Father John, it's, it's time to go. And, and we went to this first church we were going to, went down this hill and came into a little village, and I thought we were going to preach there. They said, oh, no, no, you know, the church is down this goat trail about three-quarters of a mile, 
and we get down there, and there's this old church that's about to fall down, but it was still standing, and there was a roof over it, and it was raining some, and they said, Father, before we go in here and worship and you preach, could we go down, and you can bless the new church. So we continued down the goat trail, and we got into the new church, which was just four walls, you know, made out of these mud bricks, and we all placed our hands on the bricks while we were standing in ankle-deep water, and we blessed this new building. You know, no roof on it yet, so it was, there was a lot of water down there. Then we got up to the new church, and I'm sitting down waiting for the service to start, looking around at the people, and they're just kind of in awe, because many of them had never seen a white man before. And then God speaks to me very clearly, you know, don't use any of those sermons that are in your pocket. You're going to preach something else. And I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> you know, I spent all this. These are great sermons. For, you know, you'll, you'll see, Lord. Just let me ha I have a shot at it. No, I don't want you to do that. And it's getting closer and closer to the time that I'm supposed to say something. And finally, the Lord says, I want you to wash the feet of the lay pastor who leads this church and the priest who has come from the diocese. And I, I'm, I'm starting, you know, to argue with God. Like, are, are you kidding me? I mean, why didn't you ask me to do that down at the new church where there was all that water? There's no water here. How am I supposed to wash their feet? Am I supposed to spit on them? And as I'm having this dialogue with God, somebody reaches around behind me and puts a bottle of water right in front of me. Right there, I'm like, whoa, you know, God, you really are here. It's so... I get the priest, I get the lay pastor, I set them down, and when they discover what I'm going to do, they're, they're in shock, they're horrified that this white man is going to wash their feet. And I take off their shoes, and I take off their socks, and I take the water, and I start washing their feet. And then I'm thinking, ah, gee, Jesus had a towel around his waist to dry off their feet, and I don't have a towel, so I thought I'd use my pants leg. And then a woman who came with the priest from the diocese a very elegant and well-to-do woman took off this beautiful scarf and she handed it to me to, wa to wipe off the feet of, of these, these uh, pastors. And then I got up and I said, you know, my brothers and sisters, now that you have seen what I have done, you should do the same. It's really the words that Jesus used when he washed the feet of his disciples. That was pretty much it. It was basically, you know, if, if you want to be, you know, the first of all, you need to be the last. If you want to be the greatest, you need to be the least among you. And, and you know, the word about that just spread like wildfire. Just spread like, I mean, I, I had no idea what sort of repercussions there would be from that, but it was so much better than anything that was in my pocket because it's what God asked me to do. And by the way, did he provide for me to do exactly what he commanded? He did. And so, you know, the moral of this story is if, if, if God ask you to do something, if God orders something, as he did that day in Rwanda, he, he'll be present, and he'll meet your needs for you to accomplish that, for you to be obedient. He'll help you do that. How do I know that? Because I did not complete the Great Commission that I'm going to complete for you now. You need to hear this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, said Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. In fact, we heard that in the reading in Joshua this morning, that way back in the Old Testament, God was telling Joshua and the Israelites, I'll be with you always. I'm not going to forsake you or leave you. I'll be with you. 
We have to remember that because, you know, we tend to believe that we are to obey Jesus' commands through our own might or through our own willpower or won't power, which is nothing but weak power. We are to obey Jesus' commands as we are inspired and led and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us, the Holy Spirit who helped bring all of creation into being. I'm not asking you to go this alone. And I'm not asking you to, you know, to do it all at once, but I am asking you to start somewhere. Pick one command. Ask God the Holy Spirit to inspire you to be obedient to it so that others might be attracted to Jesus, the one to whom we're being obedient, the one to, the one to whom we're showing our love. I think we all know that, that Jesus, he changed this world for good forever by being obedient to the Father. That's how he did it. That's exactly how he did it. He did what the Father called him to do. He only spoke the words he heard the, heard the Father speaking, only he did those things he saw the Father doing, and he went to that cross in obedience. Changed the world forever for good. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. We carry on his ministry. We're supposed to be out there changing the world for good by being obedient to his commands. So I'm going to leave you with two rather provocative and stirring and very uncomfortable questions. I'll let, your, uh, I'll let your rector clean up the mess after this, all right? <laughs> if we don't learn the things that Jesus commanded us to do, and we don't do the things that Jesus commanded us to do, how are we Christians any different from those who don't believe and follow Jesus? The answer is we're not. I don't care how often you come to church, how many years you've been sitting out there in the pews. If we're not being obedient to Jesus' commands, we're no different than the people out there in the world who pay no attention to him whatsoever. And the second question is this. If we as Christians are disobedient to the commands of Christ, how are those who know him not going to see him in us? And the fact of the matter is they're not. So it really is all about obedience, not as a way to earn a passage into heaven, but as a way to bring others into the saving embrace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen?